Hello and welcome to Addictions Edited, the podcast from the Society for the Study of Addiction. Today I am joined by three guests who are here to talk about their recent and jointly edited book titled Long-Term Recovery from Substance Use, European Perspectives. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah Galvani, Ali Roy and Amanda Clayson from Voicebox Inc. Um, So the book is out now uh, from Bristol University Press. Um, uh, So, I mean, I think first off, just to say congratulations on the book. It's an impressive piece of work. Uh, Can you just um, start off by saying just a little bit about what's in the book and, and who it's for? Yes, so the book is um, a a mixture of um, different um, contributions from research across uh, several countries in Europe that focus on some aspect um, of recovery. Um, So we've split it into three parts. So we have a, a, a what we call a critical explorations of long-term recovery, where we ask some questions about, you know, what is recovery? How do we define it? Um, is it possible to measure it or even desirable to do so? You know, and, and how long-term um, recovery and recovery stories um, have sort of developed and changed and, and been, um, you know, taken and, and sometimes adopted um, for other means. Um, I mean, it's, it is a research um, text, but we've been very careful to try and keep it very accessible <laughs> to, to anyone. So we, we hope that practitioners will enjoy it um, just as much as um, our colleagues in academia, um, but also people with lived experience themselves, because hopefully what we've done with keeping people's voices at the, the, the centre of this, at the core of this book, is, um, you know, provided something that people can also relate to. Uh, th- thank you, Sarah, for that uh, for that kind of overview. Um, and on that subject, you uh, this was done in collaboration with, with universities. So I know that, that Ali, uh, you and, and Sarah both work in universities. Uh, Amanda, you're from uh, voicebox.inc. Um, and that, that brings a very different um, set of perspectives um, uh, to this book. Can you explain a little bit about what Voicebox Inc is and what the role was in, in this book? Yes, so Vo- Voicebox Inc has, um, is, is, is an organisation that has um, grown out of um, initially m- my own personal lived experience of, um, of, of substance use um, and recovery from substance use. And and evolved into um, an organization that is particularly looking at um, enhancing the influence and impact of lived experience across community policy and, and research. Um, so in, in, in the relationship um, that is quite long-term with, with the universities, with Sarah and Ali, specifically with this project, the, um, the, the, the participation of Voicebox Inc and us as a, a trio of, of editors was absolutely about um, integrating uh, the influence and impact of lived experience across the conception of the book, the editing and the content. Absolutely, and that, that that comes across uh, uh, throughout the chapters, um, and something we can I'd like to talk about a, a little bit later. Um, I guess before we uh, head there and at the very beginning, you know, why 
why is it important to understand um, and to define recovery and, and why is this a, a good time to do so? Um, Ali, perhaps you can uh, talk to that. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I mean, tracing from, uh, you know, where Amanda left off in, a, in, in, in answering that question, I think, you know, recovery is a contested subject, isn't it? You know, heavily contested as, uh, you know, as a policy idea, um, there are many perspectives on recovery. You know, there's a, there's a viewpoint that uh, uh, you know many that, that recovery started in the in uh, as an idea in the UK as a kind of challenge to the you know to the mainstream system at the time, and then has been adopted as a language and as a policy idea. So, recovery is heavily contested. Um, you know, for from our point of view, we wanted to sustain through the book a critical perspective or a number of critical perspectives on recovery and hence that conversation between um, different countries different contexts and different perspectives both within the editorial team and you know uh, through the examples was a kind of uh, you know a, a critical you know was was an essential idea for us and you know why now well i guess we're sort of 10 years into um, recovery as a policy idea, uh, and we're wrestling with the implications of that, both in terms of the year-on-year -year growth in um, uh, drug-related deaths, in non-fatal overdoses, and how recovery as a policy idea has reconfigured the treatment system. Uh, so it seems a very timely moment to be reflecting on this, both in the UK and across Europe. Um, you mentioned about uh, uh, long-term recovery. Uh, are there groups are there groups of people for whom long-term recovery isn't possible and, and and what implications does that have for for understanding of of recovery it would it is absolutely grounded in what that perception and experience and of of, of recovery and long term is um in in order to then you know extend that to is it is it possible for everybody and in what in and in what circumstance for for a personal answer on that um is it possible my answer is is quite a simple yes it is um what does it look like what does it mean and what are the qualitative experience of that is where is where the distinction lies and where 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 the nuance and the interpretation of of that lies so i, I, I you know there are lots of, of questions you know lots of applications of that but uh, yes i would say it is but actually does that help us where does that take us in terms of what that means to um to to for individuals and for, for systems. Yes, Sarah. I would say no. <laughs> and this is this is part of the joy that we had as a as a as a group of editors. And it, you know, we we really did uh, enjoy working together. You know, we laughed, we cried, we we took the mick. Um, you know, it um, it has been um, a really interesting um, project to to work on. But for me, the the no largely comes from the fact that I you know I'm currently working around end of life care for for people who are using substances and recovery. 
as I think it's sort of, and this is this is where Amanda's absolutely right. It gets into how it's perceived and how it's defined and what you think it is. But, but you know, if, if you think recovery is getting better in some way, whether that's abstinence or whether that's harm reduction or whatever it is, um, and, and long-term recovery obviously being the focus of our book, then that's not going to happen for a, a bunch of people as, um, you know, one of the chapters in, in the book by um, uh, Jemmy Arwood and Sam Wright points out for end-of-life care, the concept of recovery and, and, and people entering services um, that are dominated by recovery discourse, um, you know, it, it doesn't apply. Ali, sorry, you, you were going to say? Yeah, well, just for the sake of uh, us all three having a go at, uh, at, at that question and, and reflecting the sorts of conversations that we had in the editorial team is, you know, I, I would say it depends. Um, you know, it, it depends a bit on how we define recovery who gets to define recovery and, you know, what we mean by it, um, you know, and here, you know, for me, the really brilliant critical literature on recovery comes from mental health, frankly, you know, I think stuff like the Recovering Our Voices Collective, um, you know, papers by Lucy Costa and, you know, and people like that, you know, are saying that if we only, if we only listen for, you know, um, processes of illness and recovery of sort of individualized processes of in, uh, illness and recovery then we miss vital storylines that also relate to recovery you know that have to do with resistance opposition collective action and social change and i think that you know if we wind back before recovery became part of the landscape of policy there was much more of this actually in the drug sector there was much more opposition there was much more collective action. There was much more a sense of um, recovery as a social movement, yeah, seeking to address stigma, to you know bring about reasonable change in 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 the treatment system. And I think to some extent that is you know that's clearly still there. You know, and, and organisations like Voicebox are part of that. Um, but 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 it seems like it has to compete. Um, you know, with a much more top-down, you know, governmental-driven agenda around recovery, um, and many loud voices, you know, from um, from big organisations in in the, in the sector in defining what recovery is about, and and there, you know, that, that's why you know we might talk later on about our harm reduction and recovery compatible goals for policy and treatment. So yeah, so I would say yeah, in a way, it depends. Um, it's fantastic. I mean, I think. I think one of the uh, one of the things that I enjoyed about this this book was its uh, its ability to kind of hold um, uh, seemingly contrasting ideas together and to kind of kind of accept that tension and and I think particularly um, with the balance of of kind of individual stories um, and case studies and individual perspectives as well as kind of you know social and uh, political ones that that require a, a, a bigger overview um, you said that there's been um, an overemphasis on the individual and their recovery resources which although very important has somewhat been at the expense of addressing the wider negative external influences systems and structures that affect people in recovery um, so can you talk a little bit about about that balance um, and, and what kind of appropriate responses should be what I often experience is this um, kind of binary, you know, it's individual or it's systemic. And actually what I think we certainly came out through 
through um, the editing of this book, and it and it it is quite a strong, I think, ongoing um, theme for us. Is is it is it isn't such? So it's not that we focus on the individual or uh, or we focus on the systemic. It's it's the it's the individual within the systemic, and um, and what does that look like, and how do we kind of evolve that? And I, I certainly know from my experience of working, you know, working and being part of recovery communities where um, that, that what Ali talks about, you know, the, the stories, the experience of resistance and challenge and change and power that's where you absolutely have the individual but working within that context and and that's where the bigger rub is um that actually you find looking out for yourself but don't be challenging our organization too much come along to the service group but don't really be challenging the uh the essence of how we are working the essence of our structures you know i i think for me um I always like the idea that the only thing that trumps um, the evidence that comes from a double blind randomized controlled trial is a single story. Um, you know, so you've got this on the one hand, this this idea that the way that policy changes is by the kind of gradual buildup of you know rational forms of evidence. And on the other hand, the thing that really changes things is when a politician or a senior person in government hears a single story. Yeah. Now, I think. The reason I think that idea is really helpful is because really policy changes because storylines change. You know, so there's some really nice work on this. Uh, the name of the uh, writer, I should be able to remember, but I can't offhand. But in a way, things change because storylines change. And so the storyline of recovery as a policy idea is appealing because it's got this sort of resolution idea to it. And I think that's also why recovery can be troubling for particular groups like people in end-of-life care. And certainly the case example in, in my chapter in this book is uh, a woman who's been pursuing recovery for many, many years, has experienced significant benefits as a result of that, but continues to feel quite marginal and excluded and experience all sorts of problems. You know, uh, it, you know so the tricky thing about recovery for me is when it's perceived as a sort of part of a resolution narrative rather than a sort of getting by and you know uh you know uh, and i think that's why sometimes harm reduction still feels a bit more hopefully pessimistic whereas recovery sometimes feels a bit more cruelly optimistic because of how it's used and applied um excellent um cruelly optimistic um i like it um so uh, on that on that note, you talk about the the case studies that that, that go through this. On on a kind of practical level, did you have to um, did you have to select case studies that that aligned with the evidence base, or were you kind of prepared to put in case studies that that, that ran contrary to that to get that contrast? What was the kind of process of selecting uh, the stories uh, to run alongside the the research? I think your question to me raises an um raises an interesting possible assumption but certainly around um certainly an interesting point for me around approach methodology these are all languages of academia um 
that 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 can sometimes give quite an, a, a a particular maybe narrow view of of case studies as as being um, almost synonymous with um, the involvement of and voice of lived experience. So in 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 the way that lived experience ran through our book, some of it is in using people's experiences through through story, illustrations, experiences which would which which would be um, could be classed as a case study. Um, other examples of how how lived experiences weaved through the book is in authorship of chapters, in the methodologies of how that evidence has been created. Um, so I think that's that's I think uh, much more of the integrity of of what we wanted this book um, and and this lived experience to extend this 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 idea of what that is. So I know Ali talks about storyline and stories. We had a, a lot of conversations to make sure that we weren't saying that they were just the quotes, they were just the snippets, they were just the case studies. So that's that's what comes up from for me from that question of, you know, which came first, the evidence or the case studies? Actually, it was a far more integrated um, aspiration for us of lived experience being a, a central tenet to the to the, the each chapter, and they've all they've all applied it in various ways. That makes absolutely that makes absolute sense. It's an area I'm I'm, I'm really interested in because. Because, like you say, you can you can do you know enormous multi-site randomized controlled trials and and um, uh, and a story or a person's lived experience or someone that they know can can have far more traction in uh, in terms of either policy or, or, or media presentations. Um, but I think it, I think it's fascinating because it's 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 it can be yet another tension. Like with many things in this book, you 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 held contradictory or you were okay with that tension, I suppose. I think that I think that's right. I mean, I think the reason that we, um, I mean, I would say that working in this editorial team has been really enjoyable, um, and sometimes a bit difficult. But you know, this is the nature of relationships. You know, this and sp particularly relationships around subjects like this, because there are many things in this book that we don't agree on entirely, um, and you know. To me, that's good news in trying to address a complex and contested subject like recovery. Um, and I think one of the really good um, ideas, uh, I think it was probably Sarah's, was that we would have a couple of meetings as a full team um, of uh, you know, editors and authors. And I think that um, that wasn't so much about checking up, you know, that was more about discussing some of the difficulties in defining recovery, in, you know, uh, telling stories about it through our research uh, and thinking some of this material together. And my sense is that authors really valued um, that space because it also gave an attachment to the project as a whole. Because I think this, one of the things 
I mean, I think there were various things that the three of us were committed to. One was trying to represent the complexity of this subject as a whole, rather than presenting a narrow, you know, argument. You know, two was trying to hold um, a, a developer collection that represented diversity in terms of research, in terms of context, um, and you know, perhaps also a bit in terms of storylines around research. But also, we wanted to have something of substance to say. So each of us has worked very closely with all of the chapters, um, so that we were able to write, um, you know, the first and last chapters. Um, to try to try and make some sense of the kind of complexity in the book. And I think that's a kind of credit to, you know, Sarah and Amanda uh, and the number of meetings that we've had over the last two and a half years to try and work through, you know, some of these differences. And I think the fact that we can hold those differences respectfully in our relationships with each other, for me, is reflected in the book. You begin say you begin in the introduction chapter saying that there are concerns about harm reduction and uh, recovery being mutually uh, exclusive or mutually incompatible goals, and you conclude by saying that it's important to recognise that uh, that they are mutually compatible policy goals. Um, so, uh, I mean, what helped you to draw this conclusion, and and how do you talk to people who still have concerns about the the compatibility between uh, harm reduction and uh, and recovery? Well, I think any any sense i mean let's manage expectations the idea that we're going to resolve that today is probably uh, uh cruelly optimistic um you know so so let's be hopefully pessimistic about that too um i think what appeals to me about sarah's story about the difficulties for people in end-of-life care um attaching to a notion of recovery is probably why I end up at the point of saying it depends. I think, and and this is for me the difficulty with the tropes in the storylines around recovery, is that when recovery becomes about resolution narratives, um, it's pretty hard for some people to feel connected to that as a policy idea, as a personal objective, as something one can believe in and believe uh, it's, you know, there for you. Um, and that's why in some ways, without, I, you know, I wouldn't want to idealise, you know, uh, what Ian Wardle once beautifully described as the big brother model of, you know, um, drug treatment. But there was something hopefully pessimistic about harm reduction, something that was there for everybody, yeah? Um, and so I, I think they are mutually compatible goals, but I think it depends what work the storyline around recovery does. And that's why I think looking to the critical mental health literature is actually really helpful. You know, we need stories of resistance. We need stories of getting by. You know, we need stories that register um, people's struggles, you know, um, and people's achievements. Um, because when somebody is in an end of life care setting, and they're close to the end of their life and they're still making sure they tell no one about their drug using history, that's because stigma is incredibly real and present for somebody wrestling with you know, the reality that they've only got four or six weeks to live. 
you know, so we mustn't lose sight of that context um, if we want recovery to be something that everybody with substance use issues can feel some sense of connection to. Absolutely. And any any thoughts, uh, Amanda or Sarah, on uh, the harm reduction versus recovery conclusions? You see, it, it's it's a non-question for me <laughs> because. I, because that's not where I'm I, I'm kind of uh, going. It's not that I don't understand it and see its significance, but but it but it, it, it is it it's a it's a it's not a helpful dichot uh, distinction for me. And it 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 feeds in very much to what Ali's saying about what you know on a on a on a personal level. Because whilst I'm in the system, it comes back to me and my life and my family and the people around me and how I am li living that that life. So, um, and and what what I what I am looking for is things to help that be better. And and we've had lots of conversations about that because. For me, recovery isn't all sweetness and, and, and resolution, but that's the bottom line. And, and the experience of it being better is not a static, a static thing. It's a dynamic relational thing for me. So that's where I, I, I sit. And I think a lot of time is invested around is this harm reduction is this is this recovery um i'm not bothered is the very blunt answer and and i th i think the other thing that it does just sort of leading on from what amanda says is is it, it also sets people up to fail um i think um in in a lot of people's eyes because you know we can sit here and have really interesting discussions about notions of recovery versus harm reduction but actually you know as man says out there <laughs> people with lived experience and their families um you know they're, they're kind of not interested but if there's the, if, if there is a, if a a dominant um discourse that that you know if, if you're not in recovery then you're not doing very well even if you have made some changes and 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 you're working hard then you know i think it, it becomes very um you know uh it becomes very negative very blaming very individualistic in it in its tone um and you know i think that's something personally that i i don't think is helpful for, for for anyone really Wonderful, thank you. Um, so, if uh, I get I get the sense um, from talking to you that I mean, it's always one of the things that always really impresses me when when you work with people who who, who actively seek out working uh, alongside people with different opinions to them. Um, and you've made a couple of mentions about uh, having different viewpoints. Um, so, I just kind of moving on to the practical elements of of coordinating many authors, many chapters, um, and uh, three different editors. Um, I, I mean, A, what was that, what was that like? And, and B, what would your advice be to someone who at this point was thinking, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a book a bit like this? Um, well, I'd say go for it. I mean, the, the thing is, it, it's, it's, although you're sitting as, as, as editors, you learn so much 
um, not only from, from the process, but just from each other's knowledge and views and, and everyone that's contributed. I mean, it, it, it was superb in that respect. I think, I think my advice would be, in a sense, to make sure you've got a group of people who, as far as you possibly can tell, are going to deliver and deliver what you want because the practicalities come in and when you're trying to you know edit and, and, and stick you know stick to a timetable for a, for a publisher um and and this was a group of people who you know for for the most of them not all of them but for most of them you know we we shared a same forum that's where the whole discussion about the book started um the book publisher was happened to be at the same event you know so there was a kind of a, a collective commitment to it really and i think that probably um, really helped. Um, and then I think for, for us, we just, I, I think if I'm right in saying the other two will tell me if I'm wrong, but there was just a, a real openness. I, I, I think all of us, you know, understand that we're all flawed in different ways and really good in different ways. And I think, you know, it's just partly, it was just about, you know, being honest and, and caring and, and, you know, putting our egos on on hold every now and again uh, i'd say go for it too um you know i think you know with anything like this um in, when you coach kids football one of the big uh, messages you get when you do your tra coach training is leave your ego at the door and i think that's not a bad starting point yeah um and i think um there's been a lot of generosity in the um a, of spirit in the editorial team but actually in pretty much everybody um who's contributed uh, uh, you know as authors um you know they've been interested in the project as a whole you know in the ideas around the project in other people's work within the project um and i think that's important you know um for you know for, you know for what i think is a really good uh, quality um edited collection um is that there is diversity within it but there's substance to the arguments as a whole um and i think we've um we've survived it um and not just that we're now going on to do some thinking about the idea of love and loss in the landscape of recovery and that comes actually as much from other people's work um in this collection as anything you know that that, that any of us have, have, have brought to the party in the first place. So, you know, as in all good projects, it, it fosters new ideas, um, you know, for things that you want to think about and 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 write about and, and talk about some more. So, you know, yeah, good news. Um, but yeah, but hard work. And we've had, you know, like all family holidays, we've had moments of uh, irritation and uh, frustration uh, a, a, along the way, but we've held the space together. On a practical note, I would absolutely bring out the, um, the 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 need for you know organize and organization and logistics. You know, this is this is a lot of material that we um, that we were holding, and marrying that with with a, a commitment and a, and giving time to really. Um, be clear on on our approach and the and maintain an integrity of that approach, because at times where it was 
it was, you know, busy. There was a lot going on in people's lives and, and work lives. There, 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 there was a there could be a tendency to go, I know we could make this far more efficient by you do that chapter and I'll do this chapter. And, I, and actually we, 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 we kept reminding ourselves of the integrity of the approach. And, and I think that that's what, um, what runs through this book. So every part of this book has been looked at through each of our of our perspectives and lenses and then discussed as well so it was a generative process it wasn't just a review and feedback it our contribution actually really really led to um, a better outcome because of the way that we did it and we had to really um or we chose we chose to 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 go down that line and um, certainly as somebody who is also championing co-production um, this was co-production in in action and I don't present that as an as a neat concept either but it, it was a it was a co-productive in all its messiness approach. I think just to very quickly come in Robbie is that I absolutely agree with Amanda and she put it far better than I would ever put it. But one of the things that, that we hopefully conveyed out to the contributors, you know, was that sense of how we were working and how we were including them. And certainly some of the things that we got back from our contributors were, you know, thanks so much for the update. Oh, it's lovely to hear how things are going. Um, you know, and and it, it kind of just surprised me. I think we, we would do that automatically and say, you know, OK, just to let you know, this is where we're up to. And, you know, we're on schedule, we'll be coming back to you with such and such queries. And, and that seemed to be really well received by uh, the contributors. Um, so clearly, there's an awful lot of edited publications that <laughs> where the editors don't communicate with people. And in fact, to be fair, um, I have written chapters that I still am waiting to hear about. Um, so, um, but also, I think the thing was also to give credit to um, the contributors, because in academia, at least, there is this sense that, well, it's just a book chapter. You know, it's not a, you know, it's not a peer reviewed paper. So I'm not going to spend terribly long on it because it's just a book chapter. And, and because this is a, a kind of a research and evidence based book and with people's voices at the core, we were very clear that we had a certain standard that we wanted it to be written to. Um, and so we had an incredible group of people who were patient when we kept going back. And for some people, there was three, four more iterations of chapters, which they did with the good grace. Um, and hopefully that's eased the, the way because we, we were communicating a bit. But, but, you know, I think that's one of the differences for us. It wasn't just a book and just book chapters. There's a certain level of, of um, yeah, quality um, that, that, and standard of, of um, writing um, that we expected people to adhere to. And that quality wasn't necessarily some academic quality, but it might have been in terms of making language accessible. So, you know. It, no, it, 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 sounds like a, it sounds like a huge undertaking. Um, is, uh, how long did this take from, uh, from start to finish? And, and uh, how did you uh, fit this alongside work commitments, home commitments? Um, is, is, that, is that a struggle? Is that difficult? 
think I think because it was during the pandemic, I think in some different ways for different people there were struggles. So, you know, one of our contributors was stranded in a country that wasn't her own. <laughs> you know, um, you know but, but for other people, it meant that there was, you know, the, the pandemic and the lockdown gave them a little bit more time. Um, I think for, for most of us, it, it didn't give us any more time. It took us to be honest, it was pretty much packaged within a year, but I'd say from very start of conceiving the idea to delivering it, it was probably uh, two years, just under two years, actually. But from when we sort of said go from the publisher, um, it was probably the best part of a year. And then we had the editing processes and then, you know, revisions back from the publishers. And, and that all takes a lot longer than the actual writing and delivery and, and review time. I, I think one of the advantages, the kind of perverse advantages of, uh, of the pandemic is that we've all become very used to working in this way. Um, and, you know, familiarity um, with holding space with people online really helps, you know, with this sort of work. Um, you know, I think five years ago, I'd have probably found this a very difficult way to work, you know, because it's not the same as being in a room together and, and having conversations but what you lose you know you so you probably do lose something but you gain something as well in that it's easier to meet regularly and for an international project that's incredibly important um, because it, it means that you can sustain relationships with people working in a number of different countries um, you know through the life of the project uh, so you don't you know so you can hold the whole group together rather than there being a core of UK academics who meet in person and then, you know, um, relate to other people in a more distant way. So there is a sort of equalizing aspect to it and uh, a regularity aspect to working in this way that I think really helped. I, I, I guess if this was, if this had been done pre 2020, it would have been a lot of emails. Well, there were a lot, to be fair, there were a lot of emails. <laughs> As well. As well. <laughs> Um, but probably important to say um, that we have contributions from people in Sweden, Norway, Germany, Belgium, Iceland and the UK um, in this collection. I think that's really to be celebrated because we do learn something important uh, about some of the common arguments, but also some of the distinctive research agendas happening in particular places and some of the you know differences by context too. Um, were there any themes that, that really kind of jumped out at you as you were writing this book? I think one of the important things that for me about this book and I think hopefully I reflected that a little bit um, in the in the concluding chapter was the impact on family. It became clear very quickly that even though we people had particular topics and focus to write about actually when the when the chapters came to us there was a lot of narratives that that were about family members and relationships with family members and family in the broadest sense that they may be friends rather than actually blood relations but but that so that family involvement and the importance of family being supported and the and recognizing the impact on family was something that for me shone out of this book in a sort of almost a slightly unexpected way i mean of course we know that that you know, substance use impacts on on family members but there was something that was just very powerful i think with the stories that came out about um that got a little bit more to the nuances of, of the impact on, on families and how 
we really kind of ignore them largely in, in policy and practice. Is this available now? Has it been, is it due for release? It was published on the 14th of January. It's out now and, and available where you would expect it to be. The good booksellers and even probably the bad ones as well. And it's available online. <laughs> it's an ebook, I think, as well. Um, so, yeah, we, it's, it's however you want to get it, really. Hardback and paperback as well. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for your time today, uh, Professor Sarah Galvani, Professor Alistair Roy and Amanda Clayson from Voicebox Inc. Um, a fascinating discussion about a fascinating subject. And just a quick note to say that Alistair wishes to point out that his writing about policy storylines in the book draws on the work of Catherine Needham and Alex Stevens and that the idea of cruel optimism comes from the work of Lauren Berlant. So this has been a uh, full interview, um, but please look through the Addictions edited pages for on a range of subjects and we hope to see you next time. Uh, just a quick note to say that Alistair wishes to point out that his writing about policy storylines in the book draws on the work of Catherine Needham and Alex Stevens and that the idea of cruel optimism comes from the work of Lauren Ballant.